And I know there are people out there who will say things like, well, if like you talk about race is just going to like make people racist. But like, man, like if you're going to try to cure cancer, you have to talk about cancer, you know, like that, that logic doesn't really work. You have to be able to talk about the problem in order to fix the problem. You're listening to Lives at Speak, a podcast highlighting the remarkable work of Sidwell Friends School alumni. I'm Brian Garman, head of school at Sidwell Friends, a pre-kindergarten to 12th grade independent Quaker school located in Washington, D.C. Joining us today is Liz Kleinrock, class of 2005. Liz is an anti-bias, anti-racist educator and founder of Teach and Transform. A transracial adoptee, Liz was born in South Korea and grew up in D.C. before attending Washington University in St. Louis. When not in the classroom, Liz works as a facilitator for schools, organizations, and companies across the country, developing anti-racist curricula. In 2018, Liz received Teaching Tolerances Award for Excellence in Teaching, and her 2019 TED Talk from Education Everywhere has been viewed more than two and a half million times. You can also see her on the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center's We Are Not a Stereotype series about breaking down bias against Asian Americans. Liz Kleinrock, welcome to Lives at Speaks. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, I have had, it is such a pleasure to be talking with you. I've so enjoyed watching your career take off over the last couple of years, and we're very proud of everything you've accomplished as an educator. It really brings us great joy. Well, thank you. It's we been a wild to, ride. <laughs> and, well, it has, hasn't it? And, and we have to tell the story about how this podcast came about, right? We had reached out. <laughs> to do this. And, and it all came about because of a botched DoorDash order, right? Right. I guess we have to thank the malfunction of delivery apps for bringing <laughs> us together here. <laughs> right. So so uh, tell us about uh, the endeavor that your partner's in. Yeah, sure. So my partner um, is a restaurant owner and chef here in D.C. Uh, his restaurant is called Muchas Gracias. Um, it is like next to Comet Ping Pong on the same block as Politics and Prose on Connecticut Avenue. If anyone's interested in some really awesome Mexican food, you should go check it out. Um, it's very good. The- <laughs> <laughs> we just got an advertisement in for him. <laughs> yes, it's so good. Um, but since COVID has been going on, I like to do, I typically like to do a lot of work and like writing outside of my home. Like I often have a hard time working at home. And since the restaurant's been closed for, for such a long time and things are opening back up, um, I've been working at the bar in the restaurant and just like have really enjoyed having it to myself over the past number of months. Um, so was it like a, a week or two ago, I was sitting at the bar at like probably eight o'clock at night on like a Tuesday or something. Um, and I see somebody walk in and I'm like, huh, from, you know, the nose up, he looks pretty familiar, but I can't see half his face. So I'm not going to be weird and like stare. Um, but then I hear this person say, pick up for Brian. I was like, oh my gosh, it's Mr. Garvin. <laughs> um, and I feel like we had one of those like is it you? It's pretty sure it's you, but like, I'm not sure it's you. So like, do I say anything? Um, but it was just such a funny little reunion. And yeah. <laughs> fun and funny to see you. Yeah. We were, I, I was doing the same thing. I said, I was thinking, I think that's Liz. Uh, I can, from uh, above the mask, it looks like Liz. And we both kind of looked away and then um, realized we were, um, uh, that we knew each other. So anyway, uh, that's the, I, it was great to be in there. Great to see you. And, um, so good to have you with us today. Now you were a lifer at Sidwell Friends, right? 
I was pre-kindergarten through 12. Yeah. So you, so t- tell me about your time here. What, what did you take away with you from Sidwell Friends? Oof, I took away so many things. I think, you know, the, the thing I love the most are the, the friendships that I made and like the connections and relationships that I formed. Um, I am still super close to a lot of people from my graduating class. Um, I actually have seen, I think, maybe four Sidwell people in the past month here in DC. And it's been really nice to be back in DC after have living have lived in California for such a long time and being able to like reconnect with folks I grew up with. Um, so the relationships first for sure. Um, I think like love of reading and love of mm. inquiry. Um, and that was so built in, especially in my lower school experience. Um, I remember just getting really into like these intense like thematic year-long units and have really seen the beauty and I bring this try to bring this into my own teaching as really trying to go deep within one subject and trying to cut instead of trying to cover like a lot of different things um at the same time and actually like my parents are really good friends with Denise Gershowitz who is my one of my second grade teachers and so I still talk to Mrs. Gershowitz and Miss Kolsky who I had in second grade so it's been really fun to to still uh, hear what they're up to and I think it's been fun for them to see me like in my own journey as a teacher as well. Yeah I'm sure it's very rewarding for them to see that and uh, we should give a shout out to your parents um, who are terrific people uh, I enjoyed yeah, working. They're pretty great. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty great people. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so you um, after Sidwell Friends, you had to uh, Wash U, right? Yep, I did undergrad at Wash U. Um, was not a not even like in a million years that I think that I was going to become a teacher. I was actually an East Asian studies major mm. and didn't tack on a children's studies minor until like my junior year of college. Um, I had started volunteering, um, doing tutoring after school, working in an after school arts program. Um, and then when I, I left school, I thought I would try it out. And here I am still doing it. <laughs> and so where did you where did you get your first teaching job? Um, I got my first teaching job through AmeriCorps, actually. Um, oh, I moved yeah. to Oakland, California, right after graduating from WashU. Um, I graduated in 2009 from college, so like peak recession, um, but teaching was something that was still hiring. And I taught for two years, one year in West Oakland, one year in East Oakland, first and second grade. Um, I did like in-school literacy intervention and taught an after-school literacy program, but I had like my own like self-contained class of kids who I saw every day throughout the year. Um, And after that, I moved to LA and got my master's um, at UCLA's teacher education program. Student taught fifth grade in South LA and then got hired as a founding lead teacher at a charter school in East Hollywood, where I taught first through fourth grades for seven years. And now I'm back in DC. I'm teaching sixth grade English here. So at this point, I've taught first through sixth in my in the past like twelve ish years. It's been a lot. <laughs> let's go. Let's go back to that first AmeriCorps assignment for a moment. Um, and uh, what 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 did you learn about teaching there that um, that kept you in the profession, right? Because most young people will leave the profession within the first five years. Mm-hmm. What, what, what got you to stay? What did you see that spoke to you? What did you experience? I think oof, there are so many things. It was, it was really challenging. I, I don't think I've ever been so tired in my life, but I was also really excited to come to work every single day. Um, I had had like one desk job before 
starting to teach. And I was just so incredibly miserable, like sitting in a little cubicle in front of a computer, like having to be on a phone all day. And with teaching, I loved how social it was. I loved that every day was different. And to this day, I have not been able to find a creative outlet that fulfills me the same way that teaching Mm -hmm. does. Um, I feel like I picked up on that like really early on. Also, just kids are so much fun. Like they're hilarious. They're so insightful. They're so smart. Um, They can absolutely be exhausting. But there were so many things that I loved about like my schooling experience that I was able to try to bring into my classes in Oakland. Um, Even just things like read alouds. I loved being read to so much. And that was such an amazing part of elementary school at Sidwell. Like library time was like one of my favorites Um, and being able to introduce a lot of my favorite books to my students and seeing them fall in love with them too was just really awesome and really magical. Saying that it's magical is also kind of a way of saying that it's spiritual. Uh, where, where do you find the, the spiritual connections and teaching? That's part of what we try to create in a, in a Quaker school, right? How do you take that, that spirituality and deliver it to your kids on an everyday basis? That's such a good question. I've never been asked that before. Um, I feel like so much of what connects us is really relationships and doing a lot of work around identity with students and showing them and telling them how much they mean to me, not just like in the classroom, but outside the classroom, getting to know each other beyond like what reading level my students are at or, you know, Mm -hmm. where did they fall percentage wise when it comes to like mathematics data, Mm -hmm. Um, but getting to know them and getting to know their families and caregivers um, having the opportunity to do things like in LA, I took groups of students rock climbing because that was something that I really loved to do. And I wanted to be able to interact with them outside of a school setting where, you know, there weren't certain power dynamics or I didn't have to be the person like telling them what to do and how to do it. Um, but I think also recognizing that success, I think, has been defined in such like a narrow way for me for mm-hmm. a very long time. And wanting to make sure that my students feel successful, like that they are viewed through an asset-based lens, like they're being valued and recognized and loved for what they bring to the table instead of what they can't do, which is how I think often, especially in in public education, students so quickly get labeled. Um, And so just really trying to center my kids and dehumanize them as much as possible, but also for them to see me as a human person. Because I remember running into teachers at like the Safeway or Giant growing up and totally like freaking out because it's like, don't you right. live in school? <laughs> like, don't you live like, <laughs> in the cafeteria? Like, so you sleep in the library? Like, who, what is happening? <laughs> I know. Um, they think we're here all the time. <laughs> they, they, they're amazed when they, when they discover that we're human, right? <laughs> it's so funny. Like, I remember when I was teaching second grade, I ran into one of my students in LA at Target and he is very outgoing and very very chatty and he like hid behind his mom <laughs> when he saw me. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay, this is what it feels like now. <laughs> Thinking about this asset-based lens is really interesting because in, in some ways it sounds like a technical term for answering that of God in every one. Do you, does that resonate with you at all? Do you think about that in terms of trying to discover the goodness in each child? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's something really beautiful. Um, like I am not Quaker. I went to a Quaker school for, you know, my entire childhood. Um, but this idea that there, you know, there's a light in everybody, I think is something that we could all probably benefit from if we all thought about things in that way. Um, 
feel like I have just seen so many students in my life come to me having accumulated so much like internalized negativity and self-doubt, even kids Mm. in like second and third grade, because they've heard so often from adults, like reprimanding them for things or telling them they can't do something or they're doing something wrong. Um, So part of my practice, like an anti-bias work is flipping a lot of the descriptors that we use to identify students instead of things like English language learner. Why don't we think about students as emerging bilinguals or emerging multilinguals, like viewing Mm -hmm. that, um, those languages as a gift instead of a detriment, Um, instead of, you know, the way that we often will label students with disabilities as they are not able to do things or they can't access things the way that other people can, but it doesn't actually have to do with them. It's because they're living in a world that is upheld by ableism. So it's really the systems that have been created rather than like the child in front of us, you know, that have created these barriers. It's clear that you get great passion and you you have great passion for, and you, you, um, draw great energy from teaching you all, but, but it's, it's when you are working so intensely with students to try to know them in the way that you are attempting to do, it, re- it requires great energy. What, what do you do to, uh, to replenish yourself? <laughs> Well, one very like proactive strategy that I always tell incoming teachers, um, maybe this doesn't count as replenishing, but I think in terms of work-life balance and creating certain boundaries to protect like my energy and mental health, I always tell incoming teachers, never sync your work email with your phone. Um, so that is something that I have done for <laughs> quite some time. Um, like I'll use Google Voice and I'll give that number out to families, but um, I won't give out my cell phone number Um and just like wanting to make sure that I have that separation as well and being real clear on when I'm available, when I'm not available as well. Um, I try to get ahead of my self-care as much as possible. Like I'm all for, you know, like massages and bath bombs and things like that. But I think it can be pretty challenging if all of your self-care strategies tend to be reactive to like mm-hmm. sources of stress in your life. Um, So I have seen a therapist for quite some time. I highly recommend therapy. Um, That is definitely something I do for self-care and balance and to like replenish myself. Um, I'm also a huge proponent for teachers taking their their sick leave or their personal days um, and not feeling guilty about it and not feeling like you are letting everyone down if you take a day because you just need a break, you need a breather for a second um, and not feeling like you have to be a martyr, like you can be a good teacher if you are not making yourself, you know, sick and miserable and stressed. Um, and just also, I think, focusing on what, what's in my control and what's out of my control and learning where it's most beneficial to put my energy. That's great advice. I mean, you know, especially during uh, a pandemic, taking the uh, personal days is very important um, when teachers have been under tremendous stress at this time. How have you navigated the pandemic and, and any any special um, uh, tricks that you've learned, uh, any special uh, self-care techniques that have been um, important to you at this time in particular that you didn't know? Let's see. I think one practical one is I've set app limits on my phone. Um, so my phone cuts me off if I'm on social media or if I'm just like messing around on my phone for more than two hours total during a day. Um, my partner and I both 
created like secret passcodes for each other's phones. So if my phone locks me out because I've, you know, been on Instagram or chatting with people too much, I can't log back into it. Like that's just done for the day. Um, so that's been a really nice boundary that I kind of relinquish control over. Um, the pandemic has just been really interesting because so much has changed, I think, in, in all of our lives. But for me, I actually took last school year off from teaching. So I was just in the process of writing my book and I was just doing consulting with different schools like all over the country. Um, I had actually traveled to um, do a workshop and do PD for another school in Virginia like a week before the pandemic hit. Um, And then all of a sudden, like every conference, every workshop um, got canceled. So everything moved online. Um, That was really new for me. Um, And just realizing, you know, like halfway into the pandemic that I really missed my family in D.C., um, that it had been a really long time since I had seen them. um, And that when I thought about looking into the future and things being exactly the way they were and me being in the exact same place, um, I got really depressed and realized that like that was the cue I needed to make a change. And so last uh, the end of June, beginning of July, um, I packed up all my stuff from L.A. Um, I rented a minivan and two of my best friends and I drove across the country in the middle of the pandemic until we got to D.C. And I've been here ever since. (laughs) Well, we're glad to have you back in town. Um, Tell me about the book. Sure. So the book comes out May 25th. Um, It is called uh, Start Here, Start Now, a guide to anti-bias and anti-racist work in your school community. Gosh, my title is so long. I often have to look at it like while I tell people what it's called because I'm afraid I'm going to get it wrong. Has a good, Um, a a lot of, lot of words after the colon, right? Yes, always. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. And who public, who's publishing that Liz? Um, it's with Heinemann Publishing. So they do a lot of uh, teacher and education specific books. Like they right. actually publish like Readers and Writers Workshop and things like that. Yeah. Um, uh, but they've been great and the book looks beautiful. And it came about um, after I had actually applied for their fellowship and got rejected and didn't really think that much about it until a couple months later, I got an email from one of their editors who said like, hey, sorry, you didn't get the fellowship, but I really loved your application and what you were writing about. Um, would you be interested in doing another project with us? I was like, oh my goodness. Uh, that sounds, I like didn't think that by getting turned down for one opportunity that you know it can lead to something just as good, if not better. Um, and so we came up with this idea to focus on like practical steps to help teachers engage in anti-bias and anti-racist work in their classroom. And actually the themes of all of the chapters were created by other teachers. Um, I went on social media and asked people, hey, like if you're a teacher and you want to be doing this work in your classroom, but you're not, why are you not? Um, And got over like 200 responses from people, which I was able to then sort into different categories. And those categories became the themes of each chapter. Um, so there are a lot of like organizers, a lot of guiding questions, a lot of very practical examples of like student work and lesson plans. Um, and the chapters are things like, you know, what if my administration isn't supportive of me? Or what if, you know, 90% of my students and families are white? Or what if I teach math and science? Like, what does this work even mean in these content areas? Mm -hmm. Um, So hopefully there's something for everyone. And I hope that for folks who 
want to be starting this work, but haven't, that this could be like that first step to just get them in the door. When you think about uh, doing anti-bias work or anti-racist work and, and you're working with other teachers, what do you often hear is the biggest impediment to uh, putting that into practice in their classrooms? So many things. I think fear is really the underlying cause and it's just fear of what? Is it fear of your principal? Is it fear of what parents and caregivers are going to say? Is it fear of like your own ignorance and not knowing where to start in order to correct that? Um, I think we often get really tangled up this idea of perfection. You know, I think a lot of teachers are perfectionists. Um, We want to know exactly what we're doing when we walk in the door at the beginning of the day. And I think a lot of teachers often have difficulty relinquishing control in their classroom too. And that is something that's really necessary, like to be able to let go and let students guide the conversation and their learning in order to make this really authentic. Um, Because something I also hear from teachers a lot is, well, like, where's the curriculum? Can you give me a curriculum? Can you give me like a binder or a script? Um, And I will never be about that because in terms of being like culturally responsive to your students, this work is going to look different every year because your students change every year. Um, And something that I have tried to remind teachers is the second that anything becomes standardized, if it's a test, if it's a curriculum, it's no longer responsive to your students because it's standardized. So those two things uh, I think are often really hard for teachers to hold who are new to this work. Um, I think there's a lot of fear around students saying something like problematic or asking a question and a teacher not knowing the answer. But I think there's a lot of power in telling a student, like, I actually have no idea what the answer to that question is, but like, let me let me go look it up or like we can research something together and like create this really authentic learning experience that also decenters you as like the so-called expert in the room too. Like we're all figuring this work out together. So what you describe, the kind of teaching you describe requires a lot of humility and a lot of courage. How did you get yourself to there to be um, in the moment and to be so responsive to students without worrying about how uh, the lack of knowledge uh, might might uh, undermine you? Well, anti-bias and anti-racism is something that I'm, I'm generally very interested in. Um, Like, even if I wasn't in the classroom, this is something that I would still want to learn about. This is something that I would still want to talk about with other people and like continue my own education. Um, So a lot of the work that I do with students is around inquiry. And that's also how I was trained Mm -hmm. as a teacher. So Mm -hmm. in this, um, this lens of teaching, I might like choose a topic like, okay, we're going to talk about race and like the social construction and like the origin of racism and how it impacts us. Um, But even though I'm choosing the topic, the next step is going to my students and saying, hey, like, what do you think you know about this topic? Like, let's generate our background knowledge to figure out, like, what do we actually know going into it and what biases and misconceptions do we have, too? Um, And from there, having kids generate their own questions, like, what are they curious about? And oftentimes the things they're curious about are also things that I'm curious about. And they might even come up with questions that I've never thought of before because children are just kind of brilliant like that. (laughs) Um, So I think like having that shared interest, like definitely helps, but also just seeing that when we, when I've opened up my classroom space to invite that kind of dialogue and that kind of questioning, the connections that kids make are so incredible that I don't actually need to do a lot of leading. Like I do more facilitating. Um, I try to avoid 
standing at the front of the room and being thought of as like the expert or like holder of all knowledge. Um, but like the first unit I ever did um, that I think would be considered like anti-bias um, was around gender stereotyping. Um, and yes. we were doing a unit on fairy tales and folk tales in third, you know, in second grade. Yeah. Um, and the things that my kids were noticing about the books we were reading, and then they would come in the next morning and say, like, Miss Liz, like, I watched this movie and like, it was so stereotyped, like the girl acted this way and the boy was like this. And then other kids would chime in. Um, and I think just seeing like their confidence and excitement when they were able to engage with topics like this gave me a lot of the confidence I needed to say like, oh, cool. Like, it's totally cool if I step back because like, they've got this. <laughs> And you've done a really beautiful job of demonstrating some of that work and pre-assessment and, and authentic conversation in your TED Talk, which actually, uh, there's been a couple of people who have watched that TED Talk, right? I think so. <laughs> About two and a half million people? My dad likes to joke that two million of those are my mother. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Ruth has a lot of time on her hands then, right? <laughs> No, I mean, that's really uh, extraordinary. And were you surprised by that? Yeah, I also was just so terrified. I think I blacked out through the entire thing. So the fact that it's up there is just still a little bit surreal. Um, I'm glad it resonated with people. And like to this day, I've done like a lot of uh, workshops and talks for companies like around like anti-racism, um, especially like May being Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month and like doing more talks focused on history. Um, at the end, I always have parents or caregivers in the audience who want to pivot back to like, okay, but how can I talk to my kids at home? Because um, I think the majority of people, even if you're not a parent or a caregiver, like you know a young person like somewhere in your life. Yeah. Um, and I think being able to provide like tools and strategies and resources to like make adults feel more comfortable talking about it with kids um, is yeah. clearly something that's really been needed. Um, and I think like the more I've put out there, I haven't realized like how hungry people are for it. So it's also been very validating in that way too. Yeah. Well, it's really a terrific talk and um, you know, it's a, such an extraordinary success and a tribute to what you're doing as an educator. You, you know, you, you, a couple of things that you said there that resonate. One is, how do you talk to the children at home, right? What do you tell parents? Because, you know, we're, we're in this moment where uh, we're, we're coming to what feels like another uh, very important racial reckoning in this country, right? We're in the midst of it. And, and how do you, how, what do you say to parents um, how do you instruct them? How do you advise them to talk to young children about these issues? Well, I tell if it, I tell par like parents, caregivers, teachers, like no matter who it is, if you're an adult and you're about to have this conversation with a young person, you have to start with yourself. Um, I ask parents and caregivers to think a lot about what they were told or taught about race when they were young. Um, mm -hmm. and what sorts of emotions or baggage, like might they be bringing into the conversation? Um, knowing that a lot of adults these days were brought up in this era of you don't notice race. Like you don't talk mm -hmm. about it. You don't point it out. It's like rude. It's disrespectful. So just like ignore it and pretend it's not there. And clearly Colorful. like that hasn't, yeah. So like we, that hasn't gotten us anywhere productive, I think. Um, and I know there are people out there who will say things like, well, if like you talk about race is just going to like make people racist, but like, 
man, like if you're going to try to cure cancer, you have to talk about cancer, you know, like that, that logic doesn't really work. You have to be mm -hmm. able to talk about the problem in order to fix the problem. Um, so having parents start with themselves. Um, and I know like I get a lot of questions around like developmental appropriateness, um, but I mm -hmm. even think like an inquiry based lens when working with your own children can be a really powerful entry point. Um, you could say things like, hey, like there have been a lot of protests um, going on in our country. I'm curious, like, have you heard about Black Lives Matter? Has anyone at school talked about it? And just offering your kids like an opportunity to share what they know and ask questions. And then again, locate different resources so you can continue learning together. Um, if it's like movies or TV shows, like you watch as a mm -hmm. family or books that you read to your kids. So when I work with parents and caregivers, especially the, those, um, who are the parents of like my own students, when I tell them about what we're doing in class, I always try to give them additional resources where they can continue their own learning or even like writing guiding questions for them. Like, Hey, at dinner tonight, try asking your kid like X, Y, or Z. This is what we talked about today. So like they should be able to like engage with you just to also show that what we're doing in school and at home, like it should be a partnership. It's not learning that happens in isolation. Aside from your own book, which again is coming out on May 25th, what books would you recommend to parents uh, right now in terms of help, helping to lay the groundwork to have these conversations with their children? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Let's see, for like your own self-work, I really like Courageous Conversations About Race, which is by Glenn Singleton. Um, but I use that in a lot of workshops for adults of just helping grownups kind of tap into how do I approach conversations about race and racism and what does that information tell me about, you know, how I need to show up or like what do I need to watch? Um, my friend Tiffany wrote a really amazing book that came out last year called This Book is Anti-Racist. Um, it's a journal. And so there's also like this companion workbook um, that talks about race and racism and also has like a bunch of different like reflection exercises. Um, so that could also be, I think, really fun as well. Um, and then, of course, um, the kids version of Stamped, like the there are now three different variations mm -hmm. of Ibram X. Kendi's book Stamp from the beginning. There's Stamp the Remix for like young adults. And now Sonia, Dr. Sonia Cherry Paul um, has adapted it for younger children. So I think even like getting those three, like if you have kids of different ages in your family and that you're all able to like engage around the same text, um, but in ways that are like accessible for everyone, depending on their age. So Kendi, Dr. Kendi spoke here um, at the beginning of the year and uh, has provided a lot of the foundation for the work that we're doing as a school. When, when you think about creating uh, an anti-racist classroom, what, what does that mean to you? Can you give us a little bit of insight into how you approach that? So when I think about cultivating an anti-racist classroom, like what does that mean? Um, I think first about making sure that my students are racially literate. Like, can they, do they actually know what race is? Do they know the difference between race and ethnicity? How much work have they done in their own racialized identity development? And especially depending on the age, like what that's going to look like too. With young kids, it's, can you talk about what you look like and what other people look like with like love and respect for each other? Um, like, can you talk about the reasons and the reasons why people have different physical characteristics? Um, and like one of the books that I love the most is called All the Colors We Are. 
Um, and it just talks about why people have different skin color, like because of the amount of melanin in our skin and like the proximity our ancestors lived to the equator and like who our own biological parents are. Um, so like breaking it down like in a scientific way first. I also want my students to know um, concepts that are socially constructed. So like race and gender and how those ideas have been created by people for specific purposes. And we've also seen how classifications change over time too. So that that, that race isn't rooted in biology. Um, I think that it's really important to balance focusing on the ways that race has been weaponized in order to harm people, looking at like racist systems of oppression um, here in the United States and around the world, um, but also to balance out like what resilience has come out of having to deal with injustice and oppression too. So when I think of an anti-racist classroom, I don't think about a classroom that just talks about like Jim Crow and enslavement and like, you know, anti-Asian immigration laws and things like that. Um, but that we have this balance of focusing on like joy and power and resilience as well, um, because both of those things are equally important. Um, and so as much as we're building background knowledge and understanding race as a socially constructed idea and learning about like history of race and racism, um, I think it's also really important not to just live in the intellectual space, um, that it's not enough to just learn about history and learn what different words mean but the notion of being anti-racist is rooted in action. So it's once that you have this information, once you've developed this knowledge and understanding, what matters is what you go out into the world and do with it. Um, so with my class, I've also talked about um, going from being an ally to being an accomplice or a co-conspirator. And what does it mean to not be a bystander? Like, what does it mean to align yourself with people who have been historically marginalized in the way that you might think about your own privilege and what you're willing to give up in order to create more inclusive and equitable spaces for everybody. Um, and I think that shift, like moving from the intellectual to the action focus can often be the hardest, but I find that that's often where kids get the most excitement because they don't want to just, you know, talk. They don't want to just read. They want to, they want to do, they want to act. Um, and so I think that's also a part of anti-racism that often gets overlooked in classrooms, but is so important to center. And so there's so many opportunities to uh, insert oneself into this work right now, right? I mean, it's, a, it's such an important thing to do. We're um, uh, at a, a what could become, uh, we hope would come, an inflection point on these issues. And you've been very outspoken on these matters. I noticed recently um, you participated uh, in a conversation at the Smithsonian about the model minority stereotype. Tell us a little yep. bit about that, if you would, Liz. About the model minority myth as a whole. Yeah, the, model, yeah, the, the whole model minority myth and, and, and how um, there is an emerging consciousness that is coming from these very disturbing instances of anti-Asian hate uh, and how we can start to engage that, engage those issues more proactively. Yeah, I mean, so I've done a lot of talks on this topic, especially in the past few like weeks and months. Um, and something that I tell all audiences is, you know, we have to accept that there's a lot of ignorance around Asian American history. Like if you're a product of US education, like I don't care what kind of school you went to, chances are that you did not really learn anything about Asian American history 
beyond like maybe talking about Chinese laborers, like building the transcontinental railroad. And like, maybe you learned about the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. But like beyond that, there isn't a whole lot there. Um, we also have the stereotype um, that's called the model minority myth that seems like a good thing, but is actually incredibly harmful, like for so many different reasons. Um, so what a lot of folks don't know is that there's like a really specific starting point, like an origin story to the model minority myth. Um, it was actually coined in 1966 by William Peterson, who was a sociologist at UC Berkeley. And I've always found this to be very ironic because that's also UC Berkeley is also where the term Asian American was first coined by students um, during the Third World Liberation Front. Um, and so the work of Peterson, this white sociologist, um, was popularized when he compared the so-called success of Japanese Americans compared to African-Americans in the United States. Um, he actually got a big New York Times headline um, that was called Success Story, Japanese American Style. Um, and what it did was really just solidify this prevailing stereotype that Asians and particularly East Asians are industrious and they are rule abiding and they are quiet and they're hard workers. And when you take East Asian people as like this monolithic group and you just stick them next to black folks in the United States, it was so easy to point to Asian Americans and say, look how successful they are. Black folks, like, why can't you just excel the way that Asians are? And so it's incredibly harmful because it drives this wedge between the Asian American and the black community. Um, it definitely perpetuates an enormous amount of anti-blackness. And I've also seen like firsthand as an Asian American person, how far too many Asian Americans have internalized this model minority myth themselves. Um, so a lot of the work that I do within the Asian American, Asian American community is being able to identify that and begin to also dismantle it through education and through interracial solidarity and community building. Um, it's also really detrimental because it views the Asian American community as this monolithic group when there are what, like over 48 different countries within Asia. So the Asian American diaspora is enormous. And oftentimes data when we're talking about different racialized groups is like almost never disaggregated. So it might look like Asians as a whole are performing better than other communities of color in the US, but when you break it down, the disparities are enormous. Like the average income for someone who is Taiwanese American versus like Laotian American or from um, like Myanmar or Bhutan, like it's, it's enormous. And we don't see that struggle. We don't see what different Asian American groups have been faced with nor what they've had to overcome. It just erases all of that history and all of that uniqueness as well. Um, and ultimately, I think the model minority myth perpetuates this idea that there's only so much liberation or justice to go around. And like this idea of scarcity is such a defining feature of white supremacist culture. And again, like to pit communities of color against each other to say, if one group seems to be succeeding, that means that everybody else is losing out and that communities of color spend more time fighting amongst each other rather than coming together to try to dismantle white supremacy. So how do you create the interracial coalition? I mean, that's one of the things that you're uh, spending some of your time thinking about, right? Uh, there have been many divisions created historically in the United States. How do you begin to bridge those, uh, those differences in, uh, in our communities? 
Yeah. So one way that I try to do that is through education, because we don't often learn about the history of interracial solidarity in the United States. Like that's just something that isn't really talked about very much. And we actually have a lot of really amazing examples of communities of color coming together. Um, one example that I really love to highlight is Black soldiers in the Philippines um, during the Philippine War, when Black soldiers were experiencing and uh, let me rephrase that, the Black community is still facing intense segregation and racial discrimination in the United States. But Black soldiers during this time noticed that they actually had a lot more in common with the people in the Philippines under colonial rule. And many of them actually defected from the U.S. military to go fight on the side of the Filipinos. Um, not many people know about that. Um, also looking at Filipino and Latino farm workers coalitions like mm -hmm. the 1903 Oxnard strike, uh, the Third World Liberation Front out of um, Berkeley, um, where you have, you know, Asian students, East Asian students, South Asian students, um, Latino, Chicano, Black, Indigenous students coming together saying we are not okay with the presence of Eurocentrism and white supremacy and colonization in our curriculum. Like we want ethnic studies, like we want to be represented in our own curriculum and see our histories and perspectives represented. Um, there's been an amazing amount of interracial solidarity during the Vietnam War. You know, like most everybody knows Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, but very few people know about his speech that was given about the Vietnam War and how he spoke about Asian and Asian American communities, as well as the partnerships between activists like Malcolm X and Yuri Kuchiyama. Um, one of my other like favorite lesser known partnerships, um, this group of men in Seattle called the Gang of Four, um, which was made up of Bernie White Bear, Bob Santos, Roberto Maestras, and Larry Gossett from Asian, uh, Latino, Indigenous, and Black communities. And they were such a pillar in Seattle of advocating for all of their communities and working together. And so all of these examples that show that community of colors want the same things, that we have the same common enemy, and that when some of us excel when we succeed, everybody does too. So what can we learn from those movements in history? But also looking at the work that I am that I try to do, that the work that I try to engage in with others, how can I also model this? Um, like what does it mean to engage in anti-racist work, um, to be in partnership with other educators and activists who have very different identities than my own? And how can we build upon each other's strengths and perspectives in order to you know, really try to help like enhance communities in order to focus on the different needs of communities because there isn't one size fits all for this work. Um, every community is different. It's gonna look different no matter who you are and where you are as well. And I think when we come together, we also cover so much more ground than just one person taking the lead. Where do you draw hope, uh, right? To do the kind of work you do, you gotta believe that you can make a difference. And where do you find inspiration for hope? Oh, I'll be real. Sometimes it's really, really hard. Um, and this doesn't sound really cheesy, but my students and like young people giving me a lot more hope than adults do these days. Yeah. Um, they're just really open-minded. They're really eager. Um, I often say that this work is as much unlearning as it is learning new information. And I guess because students are younger, like there's less unlearning that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, but like if I'm going to have a conversation with students about, you know, the importance of like respecting people's pronouns, it's never it like I've never had a conversation with a student where they're like, oh, like, why do I have to change the way that I talk? Like, this seems so unnecessary. Like, this is like overly like woke liberal nonsense. They just go, 
okay, like I'll use they, them. Like, that's fine. Like that's who that person is. It doesn't have to be like this fight. They just, I think, have a really inherent sense of justice. Like they want people to be safe and to feel comfortable and to be respected. And I think young people also have like a really intense sense of justice too. And they Mm -hmm. want people to be treated fairly. Yeah, absolutely. One of the lessons that you develop um, that made an impact on a number of people and you've shared it is the lesson on consent. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you how you went about developing it and implementing it? Sure. Honestly, it was a little spur of the moment. Um, I maybe because I've been a teacher for quite some time and I do like improvising, but I know that doesn't make a lot of teachers very comfortable. Um, this came out during Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing, um, mm-hmm. listening to Dr. Christine Lizzie Ford talk about her trauma and her experience and just feeling a lot of rage and a lot of frustration, um, recognizing that there is nothing that can be done to change things that have happened in the past, but what can I do proactively to make sure this doesn't happen again? So none of the students in my class end up being in either of those positions. Um, And I thought consent was a really easy place to start. And I think a a lot of folks, like the pushback that I did receive were people like automatically equating consent to talking about like sex and having sexual relationships. And I was teaching third grade at the time, Um, but I I didn't see it as that. And I still don't see it as that. I just see it as being able to set boundaries with other people and to have other people respect what those boundaries are. Um, So I made an anchor chart with my students. We talked about what consent means, what it can look like, what it can sound like. Um, and then we also got into some of like the more, I think what a lot of people would consider like nuance or gray area. Like what if somebody says no, but they're like laughing and it looks like they're joking. Or what if someone says yes, but they kind of sound uncomfortable about it. Or what if you gave someone a hug yesterday and next week they say, oh, I don't want you to hug me. Um, so just like being able to give like really specific incidents uh, and examples to students and to think about how we might respond to them. Um, we also did some work around identifying people like in your safety network, like if somebody makes you feel uncomfortable in that way, who are adults or other people you feel safe with who you know you could go talk to. Um, we also talked about the difference between like secrets and surprises, like what are things that you should keep private and what are things that you should not keep even if somebody tells you, you know, please don't tell anybody. Um, And then we did a lot of, you know, extension activities. Like I had my kids draw comics of situations where they were giving consent or not giving consent about different things um, just to make sure like it was really sticking. Um, And it really took off. It was really validating to see um, how excited a lot of parents and caregivers were and teachers too, that a lot of folks had been searching for these types of examples and language to simplify it. and that it also just doesn't have to be as hard and scary as we often make it to be. But I think that kind of applies to all of the work that I tend to do in classes. Yeah. If you had a piece of advice to give a teacher just starting out now, what, what would you, what would you advise? Oh, well, again, I would tell them definitely don't sync your work email to your phone and take your sick days and not feel bad about it. And I would also tell them that, you do not have to reinvent the wheel and that you shouldn't either. 
Like it's great to be able to build upon a lot of resources and work that other folks have done too. And so like creating your own material and your content is great, but there shouldn't be all of this pressure for teachers to constantly like reinvent things that are new. Like I like to build upon content that I've done before and I get really inspired by the work of other people. Um, but I'm also like very happy to draw on resources that already exist out there because teachers already have enough to do every single day. Teaching is like five jobs in one job. Um, and also again, to like recognize on what you can control versus what you can't control. And from like a very practical aspect, like I would recommend if you're starting the school year, not to do anything academic for like the first week of school, like just focus on getting to know your students, make sure that they are able to get to know you too. Um, one practice of mine is within the first two days of the school year, I will email or call every family in my class and say something positive about their child because I have a lot of power of how I can shape the relationships I have with the families and caregivers in my class. Um, and I think that piece has been instrumental in how I've been able to develop a lot of trust and respect with families. So they trust me in leading these conversations with their kids in the classroom when they're not there. It's all about relationships in the end, isn't it? Everything is. I wish we were to remember that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's so important. Last, last question for you, um, Liz. With, with uh, vaccines being effective and um, it looks like the United States might, might be heading out of the pandemic, um, at least there's some positive news and we start to think about getting back to normal whatever normal is, what, what should not go back to normal when we return to our classrooms in the fall? There are so many things should not go back to normal. Um, I feel like I've been grappling with a lot of frustration that at the beginning of the pandemic, folks were talking about this being an opportunity to reimagine and reinvent school. But I think very predictably, like as we're all undergoing like collective trauma, when that happens, we tend to revert back to what is familiar and comfortable to us. Um, and we're often trying to just fit things that we know of that we're familiar with um, into a setting that really doesn't work anymore. So I think as things begin to shift back to the way they were before the pandemic, I think the number one thing I would love for people to still hold on to is this idea of giving each other a lot of grace and compassion. Um, I think there was a lot of understanding this past year that we're all going through a lot um, and that just a lot of grace was given if people said, you know, I don't think I can make it to this. I'm just feeling like really down and like really overwhelmed. Um, like something that I've worked on a lot with students is focusing on mental health, like really prioritizing mental health, not just talking about it, but um, you know, like walking the walk as much as I talk the talk, um, like introducing the counselor, like to my students, so they know who the counselor is at school, um, making sure I'm like connecting students and families with different resources, um, and just allowing people like the space to breathe. Um, you know, I think we also realized at the beginning of the pandemic, how much we live in this, you know, very capitalism fueled grind culture where we think that if we're not constantly producing something every minute of the day, then like, who are we? And like, what are we worth? Um, but we're so much more than that. And so I hope people can still remember those things as things uh, begin to open up again. I was reading uh, one of the interviews you did with the Smithsonian today, and uh, I noticed that you used the language 
uh, that you call students in. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that and why that's important as opposed to calling out, right? That, that when, when you start to think about anti-racism and uh, anti-bias training, there's a, there, there's a distinction that is sometimes made between the calling in and the calling out. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think about calling out as being very closely linked to shame. Um, like you want to have this like gotcha moment. And from my perspective and experience, nothing productive usually tends to come from places of shame, especially for young kids. Um, in the TED Talk, I open with this really uncomfortable story of a time when a student said something like kind of racist and like really problematic in front of everyone in my class and recognizing in that moment, like how I responded to her was going to have like a super deep, long lasting impact on how she would be able to engage around race and racism moving forward. Like if I yelled at her, what message would she be getting? Like, oh, this is bad. Don't talk about this ever. If I ignored it, like, oh, okay. So like comments like this are just fine. And I'll just go around saying things like this for goodness knows how long. Um, but wanting to use it as a teachable moment, not just for her, but also for the other kids in class who had all started to yell at her too. <laughs> um, I think about calling in is creating these moments to connect and to educate, um, sometimes to like redirect. Um, or even question or push back on things that students have said that are really biased or problematic, but not coming from a, from a place of, you know, how dare you? How could you say that? That's so awful. Um, but rather, you know, like, I'm really curious about what you just said. Like, can you say more about that? Or, you know, I'm wondering if you've heard somebody else, like, in our classroom or, like, outside of school say that before. Or, you know, I know you said that word is a joke, but there's actually, like, a lot of really negative history and meaning behind it. And maybe you just didn't know about it. So like, why don't we have a conversation um, in a way to show that you care? Like my therapist always talks about the importance of connection before correction. Um, and that if you don't have that initial connection, whatever you say next is pretty much always gonna be lost on the person. It doesn't matter if it's a kid or an adult. And I think you also see this the way that like people interact with each other when it comes to talking about race or politics on social media. Like you don't have a connection with like 99 people on the 99% of people on the internet. So when someone yells at you online or you yell at someone online, they're not gonna care what you have to say because you have no connection, you have no relationship with them. Um, so again, like coming back to the importance of relationships and thinking about how you can center that care um, in order to call someone in to create this teachable moment where they're able to learn something and you're still able to maintain that connection. Thanks for being with us today, Liz. I've learned so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back in town. <laughs> Hope to see you soon. <laughs> yeah, you too.